1: This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our over 3 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org.
2: And this very special episode is also sponsored by our friends at the Wilderness Society. Since they got started in 1935, the Wilderness Society has been at the forefront of nearly every major public lands victory in the United States. Before we start this episode, we have a very exciting announcement. We're now on Instagram. Follow our podcast adventures there at No Place Like Home Podcast. Now, on to the show.
1: And welcome to No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. I am Ann Hitt, climate activist and director of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Campaign, living in the West Virginia hills.
2: I am Anna-Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. This season, we've been taking a deep dive into how climate change makes us feel, how it impacts us on an emotional and even spiritual level, a heart level, you might say.
1: But what if your culture and The very history and future survival of your people was at stake threatened by both climate change and fossil fuel development here and now how would you feel we're going to find out
2: we can't wait to introduce you to our amazing guest today Bernadette Demiantiaf she is a member of the Gwich'in people and lives in Alaska above the arctic circle she is fighting to protect her sacred lands and their whole identity from climate change, and also a newly revived effort to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge.
1: Drilling in the Arctic Refuge is a very big deal with a very long history, and I can't wait to hear Bernadette's story. But first, let's set the stage a little, share the latest news, and give you a glimpse of why this is such a personal fight for us.
2: Hi, Marianne. It was so amazing to spend Valentine's Day with you in D.C.
1: Oh, Anna Jane, one of my true Valentines. We got to (laughs) be together and we had so many adventures, including one that is directly tied to this episode. We got to go to the DC premiere of Paris to Pittsburgh, the amazing new climate documentary out from Radical Media. And you also went with me to the EPA to help deliver climate Valentine's because they were holding their only hearing on rolling back climate standards for new power plants in DC on Valentine's Day. And I just want to give a quick shout out. If you are one of our listeners who sent me Valentine's to deliver to the EPA, which some of you did because you sent little notes with your Valentine's about how much you love the show. Thank you. I cannot even tell you how magical it was to sit in the Sierra Club office, open up those Valentine's one by one, so beautifully handcrafted with pictures and messages. And I so proudly marched into the EPA, spread them all across the desk in front of me when I was delivering my testimony. And I made sure that they knew uh, how much you all cared about this issue. And uh, and I really did try to bring your voices into the room. And so just thank you so much. I can't tell you how much that warmed my heart um, to have you all there with me in spirit. And Anna Jane was there too in real life.
2: Yes. And it was such a beautiful scene. It was, I can't think of a better way to spend Valentine's Day than with all of you and with Mary Ann and sharing sharing our love for the earth and all the amazing people here—it um, was—it was so special. I'll never forget it.
1: So Anna Jane, obviously, one more thing we did together, which is tied into this episode, is testifying at the public hearing about drilling in the Arctic Refuge, which is very special to both of us and uh, has a long history. And that also ties in—it ties into our interview here today. But the uh, Bureau of Land Management had a hearing, and you and I both had the honor of testifying along with lots of people from the Gwich'in Nation in opposition to Arctic drilling.
2: It was such a flashback to be there, but also just so inspiring and such an honor. This is an issue that, you know, both of us have been following for a long time. That's deeply personal to us. But I know a lot of our, you know, for kind of the last 10 years or so, hasn't been on a lot of people's radars because we were essentially winning the fight to not drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So for, you know, millennials and younger folks and people who might not be familiar with what's going on, can you give us kind of a little tour through history, a little background?
1: Well, I would be happy to. This has been one of the landmark struggles of the environmental movement for decades. And the Arctic Refuge is this vast, very beautiful, very fragile area that is home to all kinds of incredible wildlife and incredible diversity. Also home to the Gwich'in people who depend on the porcupine caribou herd and have depended on them for thousands of years And the oil companies have always had their sights set on this very narrow strip of land called the Coastal Plain, which is also where the porcupine caribou go to have their calves every year. And so environmental groups and the Gwich'in have been fighting back these oil companies for decades. Uh, At one point, the government during the Clinton years was actually shut down over the threat of Arctic drilling. And during the Obama years, that threat had eased because the, uh, the Obama administration uh, had no intention of going into the Arctic Refuge. But unfortunately, that threat is back with a vengeance. And that's why we were all in D.C. So what's happening now? Tell us, like, why is this back? Well, as we know, the Trump administration has never met a fossil fuel that they didn't like. And so they have fast tracked a process for drilling for oil in the Arctic Refuge, again, this is um, has been on the wish list of the oil industry for decades. And so it is opening this up as a process that should have taken several years and involved all kinds of public comment and a detailed and environmental review. And it's really criminal, frankly, what they have done, but they have put together a very shoddy environmental impact statement. They have fast-tracked it, and that is what we were there to comment on in D.C.,
2: And you can also comment on it. Um, The Bureau of Land Management, who's the agency who's overseeing this really horrible process, um, is seeking public comments on drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge by March 13th. So we can put a link on the show notes that tells you how to do it. It's super easy, super fast, and it really is a small thing that we can all do that makes a really big difference. Um, And the other thing that's going on is there is a piece of legislation um, that would protect the Arctic in Congress right now. And that's going to be a much longer fight. We'll we'll be needing folks to speak out and and support this piece of legislation for the foreseeable future. So whether or not you're listening before March 13th or after, that's something you can definitely help us with. And we'll put that information in the show notes, too. And we're so grateful. Um, It's really important that all of us raise our voices on this issue that's really special to us.
1: So Anna Jane, one of the things that was most special to me about being at the Arctic Refuge hearing was that we both in our testimony talked about our mentor, Lenny Combe. And Lenny Combe is someone who I met in the Arctic Refuge, actually. He originally visited there as a photojournalist. And when he witnessed the threats to this incredible place and to the Gwich'in, he realized he could no longer be impartial as a journalist and he needed to Put down his impartiality and become an activist. And he went on to travel the country and with a slideshow and often with a, a Gwich'in partner at his side, talked to over 20,000 people about the Arctic Refuge and enlisted thousands and thousands of people in the effort to protect it. And, you know, if, if he knew that we were having this struggle again today, I know he would be uh, very grateful to every single person who's standing up and, and raising their voices.
2: Yeah, it was so special to be there with you and just feel Lenny's spirit um, in the room. You know, he he was one of the first people who really made me believe that I could be a great activist, that I was a great activist and taught me kind of the, the basics of organizing. And I've always been so grateful to him for inspiring me and believing in me. I honestly don't know if I would be here doing this were it not for his mentorship. And one of the things that he... That he taught all of us was um, this beautiful. We called it a lineism, kind of a, a life mantra. He had a bunch of them, <laughs> but one was always to just show up and do it in a good way. And where he got that, the the legend is, was it was talking to um, a group of Guichin elders and he was trying to kind of get them to give him some strategic advice, you know, some savvy campaigning mentorship. And, and the Guichin elders just said, you know, continued kind of saying over and over again, no, like you just show up and you just do it in a good way. And that has really stuck with me as an activist, that it's not about all the fancy lingo or knowing, you know, all the logistics and, and kind of wonkiness. It's really just showing up for these people in places that we care about and doing it in a good way. And, and that's something I have to thank Lenny for teaching me and, and, and the Guichin for teaching him. And there's this like beautiful clip that I think captures a lot of Lenny's heart really well. And I'm excited to share it with you.
0: People often ask me, how do you think you're going to win? You have to understand the depth of your commitment. And I think that the people who are our opponents, I think the one thing that really frightens them is commitment. Because when they go home at 5 o'clock at night, they leave their power at their office. Where in our case, an activist, your power is always with you. I don't see how you can beat that. We have to win. It's not an option.
1: Oof, that is really moving. I have to say that we have to win. It's not an option. That's really how I feel about climate change. That is that is this core drive that I got from Lenny that I carry with me to this day. Is It's both the power of individual action and how much we frankly underestimate our own power and, and what can come when we unleash it. Uh, But also that when it's something like protecting the Arctic Refuge, when it's something like turning the corner on climate change, where losing isn't an option. Um, And I carry that with me to this day from Lenny. Thank you so much for sharing that. And that same grit
2: and determination that you hear in Lenny's voice, you're definitely going to hear from our guest today, Bernadette Demiantiaf, who is the chair of the Gwich'in Steering Committee. Um, She shares a lot of her heart and also some of her heartache, too. And she definitely gets real with us on all the climate feels when you're on the front lines of these issues.
1: I am so honored and so excited to hear her story. But first, let's hear from one of our incredible listeners about how they are coping with climate change.
2: My name is Erin, and I'm from Black Mountain, North Carolina. Here's how I'm staying sane in the face of climate change. I've been gardening and growing my own food for over a decade. This helps me stay present and grounded, and nourishes me too. I also mountain bike, which allows me to appreciate the beauty all around me and channel anxiety in a healthier way. Finally, I often call my big sis, Anna Jane, and ask what kinds of actions I should be doing to fight climate change. This helps us both stay sane. Thanks, sister. Hey, sister. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power
1: to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible.
2: Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Our amazing guest today is Bernadette Demiantieff. She's a powerful voice for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and our whole planet, but she doesn't really think of herself as an activist.
0: I'm literally just trying to protect our way of life and our identity as in people. So I when they label me that, it's kind of surprising. Um, you know, all we're doing is it's we're just standing up for um, what we were blessed with, and it's really scary that we have to stand up to our own government to protect our environment.
2: Bernadette is the chair of the Gwich'in Steering Committee, and the Gwich'in are this amazing Native people uh, who have this sacred, special connection to the coastal plains that would become open to drilling if the Trump administration has its way.
0: It's got lit, the sacred place where life begins. So, if you look at the migratory route of the porcupine caribou herd and the Gwich'in communities, they are identical. The Gwich'in and the porcupine caribou herd have had a cultural and spiritual connection since the beginning of time. Um, There was a time when we were able to communicate with them, and we made a pact to take care of each other, and they have taken care of us for thousands of years, and now it's our turn to return that favor.
2: And with that pact came one very, very important rule.
0: The one thing that we do not do... No Gucin have ever set foot in the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We are forbidden to do that. And we all honor that because this is the nursery and calving grounds of the Porcupine Caribou herd. This area is is very sacred to us. And you know that this they've been going here for thousands of years. There's nowhere else for them to go. 95% of the Arctic is already open to oil and gas development. This is the remaining 5%, and this is the heart of my people. So
2: mosquitoes can kill baby caribou, and the high winds on the coastal plains keep the bugs at bay. The open land also helps them spot predators, and it's this really important breeding habitat. It's essentially a nursery for the baby porcupine caribou and for the mothers as they're going into birth. So you can get a sense of why drilling for oil and gas on on the coastal plain, which is so sacred and important to the culture and the identity of the Gwich'in people, just cuts to the heart for Bernadette and all of the Gwich'in.
1: You know, I think as a person of conscience, just hearing that, and, you know, I think also the note that it's the last five percent um, of the Arctic that's that's protected from oil and gas drilling allowing this to happen on our watch you know allowing the coastal plain and to be decimated by oil and gas drilling and then you know doing to the gwichin what frankly white Europeans have done to so many other native american tribes since we came to this continent um it's just so so deeply frustrating and infuriating and sad. And um, again, I'm just reminded why Lenny was so passionate about this issue. Um, But then, you know, on top of that, you also have a people who are in the here and now also dealing with the effects of climate change, like climate change has landed on their doorsteps in a big way and is already making their lives a lot harder.
2: Yeah, it really hits me hard when I think about the combination of not only are you know are they being impacted by climate change? I mean, arguably worse than anyone in the world, and in, in the sense that the Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else on the Earth. And Alaska is, is the fastest warming place in the Arctic. You know, they're already seeing giant swings in temperatures, loss of ice, you know, impacts on their fisheries, and then direct impacts on communities like Bernadettes who live in the Arctic Circle. These are people who depend on the ice for for fishing and food, and, the, and really their whole life, and they rely on the caribou for food and pretty much everything else.
0: Well, in the last two years, we've had like 17 people fall through the ice. There's 33 coastal communities that are falling into the ocean. Our channels are changing on the rivers, so we're not able to, you know, like things are really changing. We have ticks. Honestly, I never knew what ticks were until last April. And our animals, you know, the caribou can adapt better to cold than they can to warm weather. And so they are also dealing with that. Our fish are, the waters are warming and our fish are, um, you know, they need cold water. And there's just a lot happening. We're not getting as much snow. We come from very strong people. But we still need a healthy ecosystem, just like everybody else, to survive. And so we're very concerned. So
2: Bernadette told me that Gwich'in Villages developed along the migratory route of the caribou. And now that that route is changing thanks to climate change, her people have to like travel further and further to hunt, which is becoming more and more dangerous.
0: The place where I'm from, Fort Yukon, they have to travel almost all the way up close to the border, and that is dangerous. It, when we have to travel that long distance, people don't realize that the um, everything is changing at twice the rate in Alaska, and so is our rivers, our animals. Everything is changing, so um, things are unpredictable. Before, um, I just heard stories yesterday from some of our hunters that they would go to the borderline and, you know, they would wait a couple of days and the caribou would come through. And it's not like that anymore. They're, they're just not coming sometimes and we have to travel further. It's just getting
1: very worrisome for us. That is such a profound and gripping description, frankly, because, again, I think still a lot of people feel like climate change is something that we have time to plan for or that is still a decade or two away. I know more and more people are finding it land on their doorstep. It's, it's a whole different story when your culture has been intertwined with that of this species for literally thousands of years and you see it slipping through your fingers in real time. I, I can't even begin to imagine how how scary that is. And I'm so grateful to her for sharing that with us.
2: Yeah, it's really striking to me when I think about my family has been on our land in South Alabama for six generations and uh, the sea level rise and the hurricanes and the warmer water and weather is already so scary and so sad uh, just to think about the loss that we're likely to experience. And just imagine if that was 40,000 years that your family um, and your community had been you know, living in interconnection in the with this, you know, with these sacred creatures in this land, I just I cannot fathom that sense of loss and sadness. And there is there is a lot of sadness in this fight for Bernadette. She's a she's a little bit of a prodigal daughter in the sense that she went through a really tragic period in her younger life where she lost her sense of connection to her people and this sacred place.
0: After my brother committed suicide, I um. I kind of turned to alcohol, and I just, it really tore me up that he chose to leave this world. I just got lost. I just went down the wrong path.
2: So Bernadette struggled for years, but it was actually the land that saved her and that brought her back into relationship.
0: There's a mountain up there called Shanle. You know, when I went up there, I don't know what came over me, but I was just so overwhelmed, and I was... Like an eye opening for me, I just look. I could close my eyes right now and just look out, and I can see all the mountains, the lakes, everything. It's just so beautiful, and I just understood why my ancestors returned every year. And right there, I ask Creator for forgiveness for being disconnected so long. But I'm here now to share in my responsibility as a Gwich'in as a Guichin mother, leader, as a Guichin grandmother. And um, and woman, protecting the coastal plain is really personal for me because I feel like I just found myself. I feel like I found who I am again. And if you take that, if you take the caribou, then I'll lose it all over again. And my people, the ones that are struggling spiritually, will not be able to find themselves again either. I have never felt more healthy mentally and spiritually since I was a little kid than I do now, just standing right alongside the
1: porcupine caribou herd. Wow, that is an incredibly beautiful moment to think about how she, you know, kind of came back home just in time to join this fight for survival of her people. And I can't help but wonder and think about the emotional toll that, then must be taking on her. I mean, you and I and all of our listeners know that staring in the face of this problem and working on it year after year is heavy and it can get hard. And that's without, you know, the fate of our people hanging in the balance. So uh, did you all talk about how she's grappling with that?
0: Oh, yes. I'm tired. I'm very tired. <laughs> I get anxiety more times than I wish I could. I- wish I never even heard of that but we i have to do what i have to do i don't i don't there i don't have a choice at this time everything that i know now how can i stay quiet i'm scared i don't know like how am i going to do this i feel sometimes but just going home going to Fort Yukon yesterday just gave me a real renewed found strength that i never thought i'd have Everybody is willing to help. Everybody is willing to step up. I mean, you know, I see, I work with the Gwich'in Nation, and I see everybody just, they're scared, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're worried. and But nobody's willing to give up, and that is what what—that is, what keeps me going, knowing that I have 8,000 people that... It, are standing alongside me and for that i can never give up
2: she also shared with me um that it her faith has really helped her to to grapple with these issues and find strength
0: something that i do personally is every morning that i wake up even before i set foot on the floor um i thank creator i think i thank him for opening my eyes and I just pray for strength I've never thought I'd be ever dealing with a fight like this in my life it's a it's a spiritual battle as well and I just you know it's um, every time I feel like giving up I think of my grandchildren and I don't want them to be struggling to survive one day because I failed. Because I failed to use my voice for them. Giving up is not an option. You know, I will, I will stand and fight until that first oil rig goes into the coastal plain and I'll keep fighting afterwards.
1: Giving up is not an option. That reminds me of our friend Lenny and the the words that we started with. At the top of the show, that we have to win. Carrying that spirit forward is just—it's uh, helping. It's helping me to hear it again, and it just also makes me feel very grateful for Bernadette and and all of the incredible leadership that she is providing at such an important time. So, um, where does she where does she go from here now that we're in the thick of this very real threat to the Arctic?
2: She's exhausted, but she is fighting every day. She's just recently traveled to D.C. to meet with legislators and to, you know, to submit public comment and she brought a lot of her fellow Guichen with her. She's talking with banks in New York about investments in oil companies. She's going to public meeting after public meeting. It's a lot and and, and she's amazing, but she's also, I think many people, especially people who are mothers, it's a struggle because she's a mother and she's also a grandmother and she's gone a lot. So she's uh, I think like many of us trying to figure out that balance between fighting the good fight and also being present and there for her family.
1: Ooh, you know, that very much hits home for me. I think when I think about what makes this work hard, you know, I think about three things. I think about, again, just sort of the existential distress that it causes, the grind of the organizational politics and the infighting that can happen in our movement. And the third part of this that makes it hard is not being with your family. You know, I have an eight-year-old and And I've missed a lot of things that I didn't want to miss. And I can't tell you how, I mean, she will tell me that I love my job more than her. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think she partly does it when she's frustrated, but it hurts, you know, it hurts. And I, I just, I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, we have this window of time where we're, we are in the middle of the most perhaps most important decade in human history where we still have a chance to turn this around this climate crisis around save places like the arctic refuge move to a place where we don't need the you know we don't need that oil in the first place but where economically it just no longer makes sense to go drill there like all all this is it's still possible and um i want to make my daughter proud yeah i want to I want to make her proud and I want her to look back and say in that time that mattered most, um, my mom stood up and she did everything that she could. And I am sure Bernadette's kids and grandkids are going to think the same of her.
2: Oh, I mean, you guys just absolutely inspire me so much I mean this work is exhausting for me and I don't even have kids (laughs) I have dogs so I just can't imagine um both the responsibility of fighting for your literal children also the the how taxing it must be to have to spend time away from them so I'm, I'm so grateful to both you and to Bernadette for all of your amazing work. I'm 100% sure that you guys are going to make, do make your families very proud. And I'm just honored to be alive here in this moment, fighting for the Arctic and fighting with,
1: for our planet with both of you. Well, and we are in this together. And I think that that is um, something else we can learn from Bernadette. I love that image of the 8,000 people standing beside her that None of us can do this alone, and we're not in this alone. And I'm certainly glad to be in this uh, with you and all of our listeners. Yay! Well, thanks for sharing such a great conversation, Anna Jane. And thank you, Lenny, for smiling down on us and carrying us all this way. This one was for you, Lenny. (laughs)
2: For you! All right. That just about does it for us. Marianne and I want to thank y'all so much for listening. Thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club.
1: And special thanks also to the Wilderness Society for being a sponsor of this very special episode. Now y'all don't forget, we are on Instagram, new to the gram. So please check us out and follow us there at No Place Like Home Podcast.
2: If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be a part of our show by telling us how you stay sane in the face of climate change, tweet at us. Again, we're at MPLH Podcast.
1: You can find us wherever you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and we will be posting episodes and updates and info both on our Twitter page, at MPLH Podcast, and also on Instagram, at no place like home podcast. So be sure to follow us in both places. As always,
2: subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and please also leave us a review. This really helps us get the word out.
1: And remember there is no place like home.